Hello, and welcome to Christ Fellowship Online. My name is Jeannie Rodriguez, and I want to thank you for joining us. If this is your first time, I want to invite you to pause the broadcast and visit cfmiami.org connect to fill out a connection card. This will help us connect with you and know how we can best serve you during this season. You'll also find a little gift in your inbox when you fill it out. And now, Pastor Rick continues in our series, Asking for a Friend, where he's taking on your toughest theological questions. So this is how it's going to work. We're going to have three minutes on the screen right there. And so Pastor's going to have three minutes to answer the question. By the way, if there is a question that I use the board, we're going to have some ladies that will come out and, and clean that board. Those are volunteers, so let's give it up for volunteers. Yeah. I may need it. I may not. We'll see how, how this goes. So at the end of the three questions, you're going to hear a ring right there. And that means your time is up, Pastor. So. Pay no attention to All that right. bell. <laughs> <laughs> Ready for part two? Let's go. Let's do it. Okay, question number one. How can we interpret the Bible accurately? Great question. Well, that's probably, probably as good a place as you could actually start with question and answer because how we interpret the Bible is the continental divide between truth and error, between sound doctrine and false doctrine, between what's right and what's wrong. And... Uh, that's why the Bible itself says, when we approach it, it says, study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman, you've got to work at it, who needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. In other words, God is telling us that the, the Bible has to be rightly interpreted because misinterpretation of the Bible is the mother that gives birth to all false doctrine, all false theology, and all false religions that summarily lead people away from the truth. And so it's got to be interpreted correctly. And I guess the good news is God, God actually gives us some common sense rules on how to interpret the Bible. And I studied this a lot when I was in graduate school. So, but I'm just going to give you some basic ideas that can guide us when we interpret the Bible. So I'm going to write on the board, if that's okay, just to write these down. So when we interpret the Bible... Number one, hey, no, no ink. Bear with me. Throw that one away. <laughs> okay, number one, we interpret the Bible normally. You know, people ask me sometimes, they'll say, Rick, do you interpret the Bible literally? And I'll always say, yeah, but more than that, I, I just interpret the Bible normally. And by that, I interpret the Bible like I would any other document, whether it's the Constitution of the United States or, or the daily newspaper. And that simply means I take the words in this document at their face value. In other words, there's nothing, there's no secret meaning sort of lying underneath the text. There's no hidden mystical meaning that we've sort of got to figure it out and nobody knows objectively what it is. It's not like that, nor, nor does the Bible have multiple interpretations to a text. I don't know if you've ever been in a Bible study where they would go around and say, no, you know, be a group of people in a circle and say, what does this verse mean to you? And so you say, well, to me it means this. And they go to the next person, well, to me it means this. And the next person would say, well, to me it means this. Listen, it doesn't matter what it means to you. What matters is what does it mean? 
What did God mean when he wrote it? There's not multiple meanings. That'd be like, it'll be like me sending Carlos a text. Just use you as an example here. And suppose I send Carlos a text message, and the message says, Carlos, I want to meet with you at 1 o'clock Thursday at the Starbucks on 168. That's the message. Now imagine Carlos gathers his friends around, and he pulls out my text, and he goes, I want us to figure out what Rick really means here. <laughs> right? And, and they look at the message, and someone says, I don't think he really means Starbucks. We know Rick loves Dairy Queen. So I think he really means Dairy Queen, and I don't really think he meant two, 1 o'clock. I think he actually meant 2 o'clock. Now, folks, we're never going to get together that way, are we? And the same is true with God. If we don't interpret God's Word objectively and normally, we're never going to get together. By the way, we not only interpret the Bible normally, but here's another word. We interpret the Bible exegetically. That's just a the, the, theological term. Exa in the Greek means out of. And that just simply means we, inter- we, we, we approach the Bible and we take from it what's there, which stands in contrast to this kind of interpretation, which would be eisegetical interpretation. Eis in the Greek means into. And so eisegetical interpretation is where you come to a passage of Scripture and you're going to read into that text an unintended meaning. In other words, you're coming to the passage with a preconceived notion. You've already got your mind made up what you believe and you're going to jam it. You're going to force it into that text even though that's really not there. Hmm. I don't know if you've ever heard a, a pastor preach and I'm not picking on my pastor friends, I love all of you. But have you ever heard a pastor preach and he's saying something and you're looking at the same passage and you're going, I don't see that. He, he's forcing something in there that's not intended. Let me give you an example of that. Hold on one second. Give you just a, an example. Listen to this one. Here's, I'll give you an example. Here's Exodus 20. Listen to this. God is talking and God says this. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Next verse. For in six days. Everybody say six days. Six days. Everybody say six days. Six days. For in six days the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Everybody say made the heavens and the earth. Made the heavens and the earth. Now, folks, that, that text is crystal clear, isn't it? God says he made the heavens, the Shamayim, the universe, and the earth in six days. That's as clear as crystal. But many pastors and many theologians will approach that text and have preconceived notions about evolution, and they'll force that preconceived idea into this very passage. And what they'll say, boy, I'm preaching. I'm not supposed to be preaching. I'm sorry. But, <laughs> but what they'll say is God didn't really mean six days there. What this really means is billions and billions of years. Hmm. And you're looking at it, and I'm looking at it going, that looks like six days to me. <laughs> but, folks, here's the problem with that kind of interpretation. If we can't take the Bible at its face value, On page 1 of Genesis chapter 1, 
How can we take it at its face value from any, anywhere past that? Mm. Just pick a verse. So good. Right? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But maybe God didn't really mean everlasting life. Maybe what he really meant to say there, what this really means is that we'll just have a joyful life but not eternal life. Do you see how in the, when we start interpreting the Bible subjectively like that, it loses all objectivity. It means nothing to anybody anymore. So it's got to be interpreted exegetically. Let me give you one more. I could go on and on, but I better stop. It's got to be interpreted in context. In other words, you need to look at what is being said right in that immediate passage. What's said before and what's said after. You can, you can string verses together from all over the Bible and make it say anything you want to. I'll give you an example. Every, every, there's, a, there's a verse in the Bible that says this, Judas hanged himself. Everybody say, Judas hanged himself. Judas hanged himself. Judas hanged himself. Judas hanged himself. There's another verse in the Bible, in another book of the Bible, that says this, Go thou and do likewise. Go. <laughs> so everybody say, Judas hanged himself. Judas hanged himself. Everybody say, go thou, and do likewise. go thou and do likewise. I can preach on hanging yourself. <laughs> Context matters. I could go on and on, but I better oh, stop man. right there. So, but I hope that helps. That's like a seminary 101 right there. So <laughs> question number two, is the Bible missing any books? Okay, the short answer is absolutely not. The same God who promised inspiration, that is when God gave the scriptures, the Bible says God, theopneustos is the Greek word, he breathed them out and then he fear us is the Greek word. He guided the prophets and apostles as they wrote Amen. in such a way that's, that what they wrote were the exact words that he wanted. He superintended that process. But the same God who promised inspiration also guaranteed preservation of Amen. the biblical text so that we, would, that we would have all of it, not part of it. See, one of the things God loves to do is cast doubt on, or Satan loves to do is cast doubt on God's word. That was the original trick with Adam and Eve. Did God really mean that? You know, that's, that's the whole thing over here, you know, not interpreting the word. But he loves to cast doubt on God's word. And one of the things he'd love to do is make you think you don't have it all. There's a missing book. There's a missing piece. But Jesus nipped that in the bud. Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away. But my words will never pass away. And just to be sure we got it, he said this. He said, not even one jot or tittle would be lost from the text. Now, if you know anything about biblical Hebrew, you know that a jot and a tittle are the little, they look like little faint accent marks in the Hebrew. They're so little, sometimes you can't see them, but they give meaning to Hebrew words. Jesus said not even one of those little faint dashes would come up missing. In other words, not only would a... Not only would a, a whole book not get missing, or a whole chapter go missing, or a whole verse go missing, or a word go missing, Jesus said not even the dashes, the, the wow. titles, would come up missing from his word. 
And by the way, I spent a lot of time in my graduate studies examining this thing, this stuff, biblical criticism. And when we look at the ancient manuscripts, we go all the way back and look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example, that date back to the days of Christ. We compare them with our documents, your Bible, and they're exactly the same. Not even a jot. Not even a tittle missing. So you can trust it. Awesome. All right, next question. Does God predestine whom he will save. All right. Okay, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think what this person is, is, is trying to ask is, is this. Do we have a choice in our salvation? Do, do we have free will to choose God, or is the whole deal sort of pre-programmed by God? Does that make sense? In other words... Did God choose us or do we choose God? Or to put it kind of where we can all get our our minds around it, is the invitation, whosoever will may come? Or is it predestination? Which is it? The answer is it's both. It's both. The Bible says in the book of Ephesians that God predestined us according to his foreknowledge. First Peter says we were chosen by God before the foundation of the world. In other words, if you're a believer, God chose you before he created the heavens and the earth. Before there was an Adam and an Eve, God knew Carlos and chose him to be saved. Now, the good news about that for us who are saved, that means God chose you knowing you were going to blow it, right? You're going, oh, no, I blew it. God God knew that way back before he even created the heavens and the earth, and he said, I choose you to be my own. So there's security in that. Now, you might be saying, but Rick, 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 I thought thought it was whosoever will could come. I thought we had a choice in the matter. We do. It is whosoever will. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish. So who can believe? Whosoever will may come. The last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, Jesus says this, the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him that is a thirst come. And then it says, and whosoever will Let him take of the water of life. We have a free will. The Bible teaches both. Hmm. Jesus spoke both in one breath. I think it's John 6, 37. Jesus said, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. That's predestination. And in the next breath, he said, but whosoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. That's whosoever will. It's both. You say, Rick, wait a minute. How, how can you square up that we have a free choice, and th- but God chose us? How do you square that up? Listen, you can't square that up. And you don't try to square that up. This is a divine paradox that must be allowed to stand on the pages of Scripture. This is a theological reality that may not add up in our mind, but it adds up perfectly in the mind of God. God understands it. 
You know, we always, we want to go to the chalkboard and add God up and then draw the equal side and say, yep, God came out just like we thought. But God doesn't always add up. We want to put God in the test tube and shake him up and go, yeah, he's just what we thought. But God's thoughts and minds are higher above ours than the heavens is above the earth, and this makes perfect sense in the mind of God. The problem comes when we say, it's only that one, Hmm. or it's only that one. I went to a seminary, Southern Seminary, that basically says it's only this one. Man has no choice. You're just predestined. I went to another seminary, Baptist Bible College, that said, no, 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 that predestination is not in the Bible. When it is, and they say it's, it's all free will. Wow. The point is, it's both. And we just, even though we don't understand it, we teach both and we say, God will square that up when we get to heaven. Amen? Amen. We'll let him square it up. Somebody has said it's like this. This is a good way to look at it. If you're, if, you're, if you're not a Christian, you're looking at the doorway to eternal life. It says, whosoever will may come over the doorway. But when you go through the door and you become a Christian, you turn around and look back, it says, elect from the foundation of the world. Wow. Maybe that's a way come to look on. at it. Okay. Yeah. Hope that helps. I better move on. That's good. That chair is on fire right now. So all that <laughs> stuff. Good, good stuff. Question four. This is a, a longer one. Will I go to hell if I divorce my husband for a reason that God does not see as acceptable? I've read verses regarding sexual immorality and abandonment. I truly comprehend sexual immorality as including porn and going to strip clubs. I am ready to call it quits, but I don't want to go to hell. It's hard to remember the whole question. (laughs) It's so long. Um, So, okay, there was stuff about hell. Don't let me forget that. There was adultery, divorce, porn, and strip clubs. Okay. But a fair question. I understand where they're coming from. So let me just try to break it down as best I can, try to remember it all. All right. First of all, to begin with, with, um, with divorce. The Bible allows divorce for two reasons. Number one, if you're a believer and you're married to an unbeliever and that unbeliever wants out of the relationship, you're free to let them go and you're not tied to that marriage. The second reason for divorce is this. If you're married to a partner who is committing adultery on you, God does not demand that you stay in that relationship. God gives you the freedom to divorce that person. Why? Because adultery breaks the most fundamental bond that cements a husband and a wife together, and that is the bond of trust. If you're married to somebody and they're being unfaithful to you, you just can't trust that person. And God says, I'm not going to call you to live in that. You're free to cut them loose, loose and move on. By the way, she says, she, she, thinks, she thinks pornography in strip clubs is adultery. And she's right. <laughs> it is. Jesus said, if a man looks on a woman to lust after her body, that's what pornography is. That's what going to a strip club is all about. If any man looks on a woman to lust after her body, he has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Yes, that's adultery too. So if you're married to a man who is just, you know, looking at porn and going to strip clubs, you don't, God does not call you to live in that. You can cut that loose. Now, ladies, let me, let me warn you. Pornography is, is, 
a clear and present danger to all men in the culture that we live in. It is as close as the click of a mouse, the push of a button. And if your husband is a believer and he loves the God, he loves God and he's struggling with that, you want to get him help, you want to get him through it. On the other hand, if he's just saying, I could care less, I'm just going to do this, I don't care what you think, then you're free to cut that loose. And you probably should. Now, I shouldn't say that, but you can. <laughs> By the way, she, she said something about, will I go to hell? Yeah. Here, here's what you need to understand about that. If you're a believer, there's nothing you can do right or wrong, good or bad, that God would disown you. You have to remember that when you get saved, you become God's daughter. You become God's son. Amen. And just like there's nothing that your child could do that you would disown them, there's nothing that you could do that God would say, that's it, you're out of here, I'm done. On the other hand, we do need to remember God disciplines his children. Just like we talked about we should discipline our children. God does discipline his. And one of the ways you know you're truly a child of God, the Bible says God disciplines his own. So if you can sin and you see no discipline in your life, your salvation is suspect at best because God disciplines his own. Okay, does that help? Oh, good, yes. Okay. Amen. Okay, next question. Question five, why does God allow our sinful desires to emerge again? Wow, that's such a fundamental question to the Christian life, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in understanding, to, to understand that question, I, th- I think we need to understand what did happen when we got saved and what did not happen when we got saved. When you got saved, here's what did happen. Your spirit, which is that, that part of you that connects you to God, that, that is inside of you, that fills your entire body, your spiritual dimension, that part of you, when you got saved, was brought to life. The Bible says your spirit, Ephesians 2, was dead in Christ, was dead in sin, but when you believed, it was brought to life. And that spirit that now lives inside of you as a believer intuitively loves God, intuitively wants to follow God, intuitively wants to obey God. You don't even have to coach it. It just intuitively wants to do that because it got brought to life. It was changed. But here's what did not happen to your body. Here's what did happen to your body. Nothing happened to your body. When you got saved, you still have the same body you had before you got saved. And it still has the same tendencies of wanting to sin, to crave evil things, to go away from God, to walk away from God. It's the same old body. Nothing changed about it. It's the same stuff. Now, mind you, when Christ returns again at the second advent and sets up the kingdom and the new earth, you'll get a new body then that will be in sync with your spirit. All of you will want to walk with God intuitively. But at the moment, believer, it's almost like you're trying to manage two people. One, your spirit who's saying, I want to follow God, I love Jesus, I can't wait to be in church, I love Him, I want to worship Him. And then your flesh, which is saying, now I really don't care about that, I want what my flesh desires, I want what I crave, what I hunger. 
I don't really care that much about God. And so there's this tension. Paul said, I, I see a war inside of me waging between my flesh and my spirit. And he said, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I shouldn't do, that's what I do. Ever felt like that? We all have. And Paul said, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? And then he said, thanks be to God who giveth us the victory through our Lord Amen. Jesus Christ. Amen. So good. Meaning what? Meaning when your flesh wins and you sin, he can forgive that. And when that war is going on between your spirit and your body, he can strengthen your spirit to make your spirit overcome the flesh. But here's the point. Whoever wrote that, and for all of us who deal with that, we will fight this war till the day we die. Mm -hmm. So just stay in the battle. Stay in the fight. Okay, hope that helps. Good stuff. Next question. One of our children died at a young age. What happens to children when they die? Okay, the simple answer is instant heaven. Instant Amen. heaven. You know, I remember after the, the uh, Sandy Cook, is that what it was? Sandy Hook. Hook. Sandy Hook death, those kids were shot. Someone asked me, what happened to those kids? And I remember saying, instant heaven. Mm. Instant heaven. You know, one of the characteristics we love about our God is he loves children. That little song, Jesus loves the little children, it's not just a beautiful song, not just a cute song, it's a theological reality. He does love little children. And he said, allow the little children to come to me. And when a child dies, whether that child is stillborn, whether that child dies in a shooting, whether that child is aborted, that child is brought into the presence of God. David said when his child died, stillborn, David said, the child cannot come back to me, but I will go to be with the child. Meaning what? Meaning I'll see that child because that child is in the presence of God. By the way, Jesus also said this about children. He said, whoever offends one of these little ones who believes in me, it were better that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea. How explicit could you get, Jesus? And for what we saw this past week with the priests who have abused these children in the Catholic Church for decade after decade after decade, and it was swept under the rug, and it was hidden. It was not hidden from God. Amen. God has watched it all along, and God says, vengeance is mine. And for all of those children and for all of you who have been abused by anybody, like we said last time, you rest God will deal with it. Vengeance is his. He'll take care of it. So, hope that helps. Pastor, there was a question that was submitted about uh, an ch autistic child. What happens to them when they die? Autism. Yeah. Okay. Uh, for, for one thing, for any of you who deal with children who struggle with development in any form, God bless you. I hope that we at Christ Fellowship can, can figure out how to have a ministry to people who, parents who struggle with that, deal with that alone sometimes. 
Again, I would say, you know, when one of the things we love about our Lord is his, his compassion. Hmm. Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. And God said, okay, Moses, I'll show you my goodness, my mercy, and my compassion. And the same God who is compassionate on a child who dies, who could not understand, will be compassionate on a person who has a development problem who can't understand, whether they're grown or young, God will have compassion on them and bring them to be with him just like he will with that child. That's what I think. Amen. Hope that helps. Amen. Okay, next question, question seven. The Old Testament talks about people who live to be 900 years old. How is that possible that they measure it differently? Okay, just to kind of frame that in the, in the, in from, from Genesis 3 to, to about the flood, people were living to be close to 1,000 years old. Methuselah, I think, lived 900. So let me kind of give you a picture of, of how, how, this, how this works. I'm using this board a lot. But when God created, let's go to Genesis 1. When God created mankind, he gave man eternal life. In other words, when, when Adam and Eve were created, God did not, like we said last time, God did not write death into the blueprint. They were created to physically live forever. Now, that's hard for us to imagine because the laws of physics, we just, we're so used to the physics as they exist, we can't imagine they're not being second law of thermodynamics, the laws of entropy, but they weren't in effect then. God created them. They would not deteriorate. They would not age. They would not die. With this one caveat, as long as they didn't sin. But God said, if you sin, you're going to trigger death. And we know the story, don't we? They sinned, and they began to die. They didn't die instantly. But they began to die. But interestingly, so you've got eternal life in chapter 1. What happened was they went from eternal life to life expectancy of about 1,000 years. And then... Once the flood came, I don't know how to make the flood look other than that, um, (laughs) the life expectancy dropped to about 100 years, or less than 100 years to what we are now. So they went from eternal life to 1,000 years, now we're down to less than 100. However, when Christ returns at the second coming, the first thing he will do is establish a kingdom on this earth. And life expectancy in that kingdom will be a 1,000 years. In fact, the Bible says if a a person dies at 100 years old, he will have died as a baby. Can you imagine somebody will say, oh, he was only 100. (laughs) See us laughing because we're just not used to that. But that's what will happen. And then Christ will destroy this earth and create a new earth. And life expectancy will go to eternal life again. So you see, the, you see what happens? Begins with eternal life, goes to 1,000, drops to 100, back to 1,000, back to eternal life. So the whole Bible is like a return to the beginning, which is back to eternal life. Does that help? Does that make sense? So okay. Good. So good. That's awesome. All right, question number eight. How do you reconcile that scientists believe 
that the world is millions of years old, and yet, according to the Bible, it is only a few thousand years old. Can you read that again while I'm teaching? <laughs> <laughs> read it one more time. How do you reconcile that, the, that scientists believe that the world is millions of years old, and yet, according to the Bible, it is only a few thousand years old? Okay. Um, okay, let's go back to where we started at the beginning of this. We know the Bible says God created the heavens and the earth in six days. And chronologically, the Bible dates the earth to be about 6,000 years old. Now, that stands in contrast to what a lot of scientists would say. And they would say, no, 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 the earth's not 6,000 years old. The earth is actually billions and billions and billions of years old. And listen, I totally get that. Mm. I studied physics, I studied biology, I studied chemistry, so I get it, I get it, I know where you're coming from. But here's what we need to understand. When God created the heavens and the earth, he created them fully matured. Or put another way, God created the heavens and the earth and life with the appearance of age. In fact, let me give you sort of a, a, a visual picture of that that might help you, you grasp it. Let's imagine that a, that a modern-day scientist takes a trip back in time to Genesis, Genesis 1 to the Garden of Eden, and he arrives there just moments after Adam and Eve have been created. And so our scientist takes out his pencil and paper. He looks at Adam and Eve. He sees a fully grown couple, male and female, physically fully developed, with fully developed mental capacity with fully developed dexterity skills, and his assessment is they are about 25 years old. But he would be wrong. They were only moments old, but they were created with the appearance of age fully mature. Now, stay with me, because imagine our scientist does a, a botanical study on a tree. So he observes a big oak tree in the Garden of Eden, and looking at it, he determines that it's, it's an older tree. And so he cuts the tree down, and then he begins to count the rings inside the tree. And by the way, the rings would be there because it's a part of the tree's vascular system. One, two, three, four. He counts 90 rings, and so he dates the tree 90 years old. But in reality, the tree was only a couple of days old. Imagine the creatures flying overhead. He sees an eagle with fully developed body, fully developed wings and skills and, and honing skills. And he looks at that eagle and he dates it to be about six years old. But the fact is, the eagle's only days old. He looks at the mountains and the hills and the streams and other geological features of the earth and he determines in his mind that they're, they're billions of years old. They're millions of years old. But the truth is God had just created them the same way only days before. Mm. Think about Adam and Eve laying at night looking up at the stars. And they're seeing light from a star that is, and maybe a galaxy even, that's maybe billions of light years away. Light travels at 186,000 miles per second, 667 or 3 million miles per hour, and they're seeing the light from that. You say, meaning what? 
Meaning God created the stars with the light in transit. God supernaturally accelerated the speed of light so that it would reach them. God didn't create the universe and say, well, we have to wait a trillions and trillions of years for anybody to see that. No, God just, you see, God created the laws of physics. God can suspend them. He did all the time. He suspended the laws of gravity. He suspended the laws of physiology. He suspended the laws of biology. And it's not a problem for God to suspend his own law and make that happen. Amen. By the way, he has that kind of power. By the way, Jesus said to the thief on the cross who died, who was about to die, he said, today you'll be with me in, in heaven, in paradise, which is probably billions of light years away from the earth. Mm. You couldn't travel to heaven. If you could travel at the speed of light, it would take you 100 billion years to get there. And yet, if you're a Christian, you can die today and be there today. That's the power Amen. of our God. Okay, I better speed up. Hope that helps. All right, question number nine. What about dinosaurs? <laughs> Don't they prove evolution? Okay, I got to say this. Every time I think of dinosaurs, I think of, how many of you remember the far side? Little cartoon, some of you? Yeah. There was this one far side that had these two dinosaurs, and they were lighting up a cigarette. They were like behind the trees lighting a cigarette, and it said over the top, the real reason dinosaurs are extinct. That's <laughs> Okay, what about dinosaurs? Don't they prove evolution? Actually, they prove creation. I love dinosaurs. Dinosaur means uh, giant lizard, and that's basically what they were. And they don't, they don't prove evolution. They actually prove creation. Because the fact of the matter is, dinosaurs did exist, but they didn't exist billions and billions of years ago, millions and millions of years ago. They existed during Bible times. In fact, the Bible talks about them. There's a Hebrew name for them, and God describes them as having a tree, describes one of them as having a tail, I'm sorry, a tail the size of a giant cedar tree. I mean, you can just see a Baratosaurus with this big tail, and God's describing them. Now, here's what we need to understand. Dinosaurs did not exist billions of years ago they existed, let's go back to what we said a while ago. Here's Genesis 1. God creates the heavens and the earth. And let's go to the flood, which would be Genesis 6. Dinosaurs existed in this period of time. And the Bible talks about them in that period of time. Now, stay with me. Because you'll remember during this period of time after sin, man's life expectancy was how long? A thousand years. Now, after the flood, man's life expectancy drops to about a hundred years. So, if before the flood, human beings are living about a thousand years, we could expect that the animals before the flood were also living much, much longer. Mm. Now, hang with me. Because if you know anything about dinosaurs, you know they are what kind of creature? They are a reptile. And if you know anything about reptiles, you know this. A reptile will grow as long as it lives. It'll just continue to grow. So if you're looking at a big crocodile, you're probably looking at an older crocodile. If you're looking at a big alligator, you're looking at an older alligator. 
So if, if, a, if, if a crocodile or a lizard or let's say a Komodo dragon was not living like they are now, you know, 10, 20 years, but imagine that lizard is living to be a thousand years old and he's growing the entire time. What would you have at six, seven, eight hundred, nine years along the way? I'll tell you what you'd have. You would have one big lizard. You'd have a dinosaur. And that's exactly what the Bible tells us. After the flood, their life expectancy dropped. We see some big lizards, alligators, crocodiles, Komodo dragons, but nothing the size of that because they just don't live that long anymore. So I hope that helps. It's good. Is this the last one? Yeah. Okay. Question number 10. This is the last one. Okay. Uh, my parents are Catholic. Will they go to heaven? Okay. Uh, good question to close on. Mm. Uh, we, you know, we live in a city where there's a lot of Catholics, a lot of Catholic churches, very pervasive here. Some of our campuses that are global campuses live in countries where there's a lot of Catholicism. Yep. I think the first thing I would say is that is this eternal life is not gained by any religion denomination, whether it be Catholicism or Baptist or Presbyterian or Methodist or even a, a single group like us, Christ Fellowship, nor is eternal life gained by doing good deeds, hmm. nor is eternal life gained by being good enough. Hmm. See, that's what religion tells people. Religion basically says this. We're the right religion, follow this religion, do good deeds, be a good person, and you'll, you might make it to heaven. Here's, here's kind of the problem with that right off the bat. How religious do you need to be then? How many good deeds is enough good deeds? How good, how, how good do you have to be to be good enough? To go to heaven. If that's the way it's gained, how good do you have to be? How good is good enough? The Bible says there's none good. And just to make sure we get it, it says no, not one. Our righteousness, the Bible says, is like filthy rags before God. But that's what religion tells us is the way to God. Be this religion, follow this religion, be a good person, live a good life, and you'll make it. Listen, the surest way not to go to heaven is to try to get there by following a religion, doing good deeds, and doing good works, and being a good person. That will not get... And this is the reason Jesus condemned religion when he was on earth. Jesus ran from religion and condemned it. Why? Because that's what religion teaches. You say, well, Rick, if, if being a part of religion is not the way and being a... You know, doing good deeds and trying to be good is not the way. How do we get to heaven? Well, the Bible makes it simple. Jesus said it's so simple that a child can do it. Listen, religion clutters the way. Religion confuses the way. Jesus said this. He said a child can do this. He said, don't forbid them to come to me. It's that simple. So how do we get saved? Ephesians 2 tells us, here's what it says. 
The Bible says, for by grace are you saved. That means by God's mercy alone are we saved. For by God's mercy are we saved through faith and that not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, lest anyone should boast. In other words, nobody's going to get to heaven and say, man, I'm here because I deserve to be here. Man, I was good. You see, if you're trying to be good enough to go to heaven and work your way to heaven and do good deeds, what you're basically saying is, I, I don't need a Savior. I got this God. I got this Jesus. I don't need you. Wow. I'm good enough on my own. But when you realize you can't save yourself, here's what the Bible says. And you call out to Christ, he will save you. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, will be given eternal life. So how do you receive eternal life? Not by being a Catholic, not by being a Baptist, not by being a Methodist, not by being a Presbyterian. Eternal life is gained one by one way, receiving Christ as your Savior. And as you receive him, then you intuitively begin to follow him. So why don't you do that today? What a great way to close on this question. Amen. That's right. By receiving him today. Let's bow our heads at all of our campuses. Every head bowed, every eye closed. No one looking around. If you want to receive Christ today, if you want to call on him today, why don't you pray this prayer? I'll lead you in this prayer. And you pray it to him quietly in your heart because he's listening. This is not a scripted prayer. It's not a poem. So pray it from your heart. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the Word of God that makes everything so clear. Thank you for making the way to eternal life so crystal clear and so right now Heavenly Father I open the door to my heart I open the door to my life and I invite you to come in I ask you to forgive all of my sins my past sins my present sins even my future sins and I ask you to give me ever lasting life. Lord, thank you so much for loving me. Thank you for not giving up on me. And thank you for giving me the gift of eternal life. May I from this day forward spend the rest of my life following you, obeying you, loving you, and being loved by you. In your precious name I pray, amen. Christ Fellowship at all of our campuses, if you're glad for those who prayed that prayer, let them know it. Yes. Now listen, if you prayed that prayer today at all of our campuses, I want to ask you to do this at the conclusion of our service. Go to the Next Step booth at your campus. There's one at every campus, big letters, says Next Step. If you'll just go there and say, hey, I, I prayed today to receive Christ, however you want to see it, they'll know it. Just say, hey, I'm trusting Christ. They'll give you a brand new copy of the Bible, Christ Fellowship Blue. Give that to you 
as a free gift from us as you begin your journey with God. Well, thank you so much for making this enjoyable. I hope um, uh, you were able to track along with me, and I hope I was able to, to give you some answers that will help. By the way, next weekend, Saturday morning, I cannot wait, beach baptism. Yes. yes. Listen, you know, you know that we have over 600 people signed up to be baptized. And I'm going to tell you, it's going to be a great day. I forget, you'll tell them exactly where it is down there near Bill Baggs Park, but a little bit back from it. But we're going to gather there. We're going to have food and hamburgers, hot dogs, all kind of stuff. It's going to be like tailgating. And then we're going to gather together and worship God. We're expecting thousands of people to be there. What a testimony. And we're going to worship God and sing and praise Him. All of our campuses are going to be there. And we're going to baptize. I can't wait. I'm going to baptize two of my granddaughters. So I'm so excited yeah. about that. <laughs> and baptize some of you as well. So I love you all. Christ Fellowship, I'm going to ask our campus pastors to come forward now. I love you all. God bless you. Have a great weekend. I hope that Pastor Rick answered your question. If you're taking your next step as a believer, we want to hear about it. Visit cfmammy.org connect to fill out a connection card. We want to thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you next time.